So there is a 70-year-old stone Dominican church building in Maastricht, the Netherlands. I'm not sure if I said that right. A Dominican church building that was actually not being used as a church. It had shut down long ago, so it was purchased by a Dutch bookstore chain named Selex. And Selex hired uh, an architectural firm to redesign the sanctuary space into a bookstore. Called the Selex Dominican Maastricht Project, the firm utilized the height of the space and built uh, vertically, including very tall bookshelves along one side of the sanctuary. Uh, They combined the aged stone aesthetic with clean modern lines. Uh, They built a coffee bar towards the altar space and paid homage to the church with a cross-shaped study table over on the right. Visitors from around the world have gone to selects to purchase books and gawk at the repurposed space. Now, this church building is not the only one that has been repurposed for other uses. Thousands of old church buildings are actually emptied every year. About five to 6,000 churches uh, close in the United States every year and are sold off for other purposes. And some very creative people have found some very creative purposes for them. Many have been turned into homes, for example. Some into very attractive loft apartments. Lots of churches have been redesigned into trendy startup office space. A church, an old Catholic church in Pittsburgh was converted into a brewery. Uh, I wanna go there. Another church in London was made into a pub, and this church was made into a very interesting auditorium. And then there are less conventional uses. This German church was remade into a kindergarten facility. Uh, This church was purchased by a frat house and was made into a fraternity. Oh, the sacrilege. Uh, Here's a church that was made into a skate park. Talk about flying buttresses, right? Um, And here's one that was made into a laser tag arena. Uh, we actually, when we were renovating this building, we used it one night uh, for a laser tag game, and it was lots of fun. Now, I commend the dreamers who repurposed these sacred spaces, points for creativity. At the same time, I'm sure you'd agree that these renovated church spaces are at least a little sad to look at. At one time, each of these spaces were spiritual houses of worship filled with congregants praising the Lord, serving the poor. For various reasons, though, each of them lost their members, had to be sold off. Now they are pubs and kindergartens and skate parks. No matter how inventive or beautiful these new spaces are, it's worth remembering that that's not what these churches were meant to be. The church wasn't meant to be a bar or a laser tag arena. It was meant to be something else. But what? What was the church meant to be? If not an office space, what? That's actually the question that we're going to be going after during this series, starting today, called What the Church Was Meant to Be. Uh, Rooftop is a church, if you are wondering what sort of thing you have entered. But, But that deserves discussion. As a church, what are we? What are we supposed to do? What's God's vision for us? That little church-shaped void in our nifty marketing there. What's supposed to go in that space? That's an important question for a couple reasons. It's an important question because as God's church, we are God's people. And our effectiveness depends on our ability to line up with his purposes for us. The church is at its best 
when it's serving the role that God as our owner, as our benefactor has carved out for us. And it's very easy to drift away from that. It's very easy for churches to drift away from what God had in mind when he started them. Uh, It's very easy for churches to become something else, what the church was not meant to be. The church was not meant to be a country club. The church was not meant to be a political operation. The church was not meant to be a self-help seminar. The church was not meant to be uh, a personality cult. And it's very easy to drift away from what the church was supposed to be. And churches need to stay laser-focused on their identity, on what they were supposed to be. But again, what is that? What is our calling as a church? That's an even more important question for us as a church to answer because Rooftop is actually getting ready to reproduce. We're getting ready to start a daughter congregation within the next year, uh, next fall. And we're going to be talking a lot about that uh, starting next week, in fact, we've got a big sort of vision moment on, uh, on the church plant that we're going to start. And as we get ready to birth, it's even more important for us as a church to have a very clear understanding of who we are, why we are what we are, and, and what our, our daughter church needs to be. So what we're going to do during this three-month series, then, is explore what the Bible says about that question what the church was meant to be. Specifically, we are actually gonna be studying the variety of metaphors and images the Bible uses to describe what God's people are. The Bible uses over 100 different pictures or metaphors or images to describe God's church, his people. You know what a metaphor is, right? A metaphor is something that's described as something else that it's not, uh, in order to draw our, in order to help us understand what it kind of really is. Like, uh, here's, a, here's a metaphor. Jason Herbig, our pastor of worship here. Uh, Jason Herbig is a Swiss army knife. How? He can do anything. Jason Herbig can do anything. Now, he's not, it's a metaphor. He's not actually a knife. He's like a Swiss army knife. Here's another metaphor. Uh, St. Louis, gateway to the West. St. Louis, gateway to the West because pioneers... Tons and tons of pioneers made their way through St. Louis out to the frontier. Gateway is a metaphor. There's not actually a big gate downtown. That would be kind of dumb. Wait a second. There is a big gate downtown. (laughs) Same thing with the church. The Bible describes the church in hundreds of metaphors, hundreds of ways to help us learn what it is. Uh, The Bible describes the church as a body. The Bible describes the church as a field. The Bible describes the church as a family. The Bible describes the church as a community. The Bible describes the church as a, as a bride. The Bible describes the church as, as a school, as an army, as a lighthouse, as a temple, as a flock. Each of these metaphors and images have something particular to contribute to our understanding of what the church is. You know, the church as an army describes our mission. The church as a family describes the intimacy of our relationships. The church as a community emphasizes our our unity and our diversity. And at the end of this, our prayer is that we will have an even broader and clearer understanding of God's purpose for us as a congregation and how you can be a part of this. Because that's the goal. And this goes for everyone, too. This series is not just for rooftop insiders. Even if you're a visitor, even if you're a skeptical non-believer, even if you, like, barely come to rooftop, first of all, welcome. We're glad you're here. Wherever you're at with God, wherever you're at with the church, we're glad you're here this morning. But also, we're glad you're here for this. Uh, We know that you want to know what rooftop is in order to decide if you want to come back. We want to be the sort of church where people can come back. And 
the likelihood that we will become the sort of church that people come back to is greatly increased by how closely we line ourselves up with God's purposes for us as a congregation. You are more likely to come back to a church that is becoming what God intended it to be. So that's the series, and that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to look at pictures of what God intended the church to be so that we can, with his help, become those things. Now, before we jump into the series proper, though, before we start considering metaphors for the church, I want to spend the rest of my time this morning addressing a slightly different question. And I want to do this by way of further introduction to make sure we're at least starting, if not on the same page, in the same chapter. Next week, we're going to start discussing what the church was meant to be, but this morning I want to start with a slightly different question. What even is the church? That's a different question. And I want to discuss that question to lay some theological groundwork. From a theological perspective, what is the church? Not what the church is supposed to be. It's different. What is the church? What are we? If aliens descended from the sky and walked or slithered into our doors on Sunday morning and asked, what exactly is happening here? And we had to sort of define to these aliens what we are. And these aliens don't like metaphors. They don't speak metaphor. They're, they're very literal aliens. They come from the planet Literalis. And they, and they, they want us to like define literally you know, what, what's happening here. What would we tell them? I mean, on the surface, here's what it kind of looks like. We're a bunch of uh, you know, assorted random people who gather together on Sunday morning for some bagel snacks and coffee. And we do a sing-along. And we sit there for a good yelling at from the stage. And then... Everybody goes home and takes a nap. Like, that's kind of what we are. That's what we do. But what are we really? When Jesus Christ says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it, what is he building exactly? When the apostles traveled around the Roman Empire founding churches, what were they founding? When Paul gives instructions on how to worship in church, what's he talking about? What is this thing called the church anyway? This is an important question, too. Now, there are actually lots of ways to define uh, the church. Huge books have been written to define the church. I would define the church this way, though. If you are the studious type, you might be tempted to write this down, but please don't try. There's too many words. Uh, you will fail. Um, it's, in the, it's in the notes on, on the website anyway, so if you ever want to get sermon notes, they're all actually in, on the website. But here's how I define the church. The church is, the Christian church is the chosen people of God, made holy by the work of Christ, called out from among the nations to gather together in praise of God's glory and goodness and empowered by the Holy Spirit to continue Jesus' work of service, sacrifice, and proclamation of the gospel until the day of our final union with him. Technically speaking, that's the church. The Christian church is the chosen people of God, made holy by the work of Christ, called out from among the nations to gather together in praise of God's glory and goodness and empowered by the Holy Spirit to continue the work of Christ of service, sacrifice, and proclamation of the gospel until the day of our finally, final union with him. That's a mouthful, but technically speaking, that's the church. And here's the thing. Every single word in that definition is an essential part of what we are as God's church. Every single word. For starters, the church is Christian. We are those who follow Christ. 
Also, the church consists of those who have been made holy by Jesus. Anyone, anywhere, made new. We're not just people. We're not just random people. We're people who have been made new by the work of Christ. Anyone, everywhere, around the globe, over the timeline of human history, who is made holy by Jesus Christ is part of the church. Also, the church is called out from the world. We are not citizens of earth. We are a spiritual nation, hiding in plain sight around the globe, joined together by faith. On top of that, even though we are separated from the world, we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to continue Christ's work. We have a job to do, specifically serving, sacrificing, proclaiming the gospel, and we do all this until our final union with Jesus, which is described in the New Testament as a marriage. It's one of the images of the church that we're going to talk about. The church is a bride. So every single part of this definition is relevant to an understanding of what the church is. But there's one little part of this definition that I actually want to focus in on this morning just for a few moments. It's buried there in the middle. The Christian church is the people of God gathered together. Perhaps more than anything, that's what the church is. It's the people of God gathered together. In fact, this is exactly what the word church means. The word church is not actually used at any point in the Bible, because it's an English word, uh, but it was written in Greek. And the word church comes from an old European word, kirk, or kirka. And those words, church, kirk, kirka, uh, that's, if, if you're familiar with the, the Kirk of the Hills, big Presbyterian church out on Ladue Road, that's the church of the hills. That's what a kirk is. A kirk is a church, church of the hills. And those words, church, kirk, kirka, come from the actual Greek word uh, in the New Testament used for church. It's the word ekklesia. Everybody say the word ekklesia. Ekklesia. That's the Greek word for church. Now, literally, literally, an ecclesia is literally translated as a gathering. A, 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 a gathering of a town's citizens, in particular. If a city or a village you know, needed to convene to take care of some civic business, they would call for an ecclesia. They would call for a town meeting, a community gathering. Heralds would go throughout the town yelling for an ecclesia, gather around, an ecclesia, uh, meet down at town hall. An ecclesia was a town meeting. And that's the word, that's the word that gets picked up in the New Testament to describe God's people. We are his town meeting. We are his ecclesia, his gathering. In fact, that idea of the church as a gathering as an ecclesia, is so central in the New Testament that a pastor friend of mine here in St. Louis who, who started a church years ago actually named his church The Gathering. I, I know the pastor. He's a friend of mine, and that's his vision for the church. The church is a place where God's people can gather together. And I think this understanding of the church as a gathering, as an ecclesia, can be helpful, especially because of some of the questions it raises and some of the nuances folded into that notion. I can think of a few questions that get raised by this understanding of the church, questions that are actually beneficial for us to discuss as we start our series on the church. Here's what I mean. If the church is a gathering, it raises at least three questions. Gathered by whom? Gathered to where? And gathered for what? If the church is a gathering, gathered by whom? Gathered to where? And gathered for what? 
With the time I have left, I want to talk about each of those questions. First, gathered by whom? Now, obviously, the answer to this is, is, is God. <laughs> it's certainly not me or any pastor, although that might not be immediately obvious. Yeah, we started Rooftop years ago. We put the signs up. We got the word out. We ran the radio ads. We rented the space at Richmond Heights Community Center. We shot it from the rooftops. We built this place up. But do not be deceived. We're just the workers. We're just the messengers. God is the gatherer. And God has always been the gatherer. If you don't know the God of the Bible, let me tell you this about him. He's quite the party planner. He loves getting people together. He's not aloof off by himself in some corner of the galaxy. He is a God of relationships. He's a trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. He likes company. And he's always dreamed, he's always dreamed of having a church, of having a gathering. In fact, centuries before the life of Jesus, God's people, the Israelites, uh, had been sadly scattered throughout the Middle East. In, in fact, it's much of the story of the Old Testament. The story of the Old Testament is the eventual scattering of God's people, the Israelites, throughout the Middle, the Middle East because of their sin, because of their disobedience. Uh, some were scattered north. Some of the Israelites were scattered south. I mean, there were 12 nations. There were 12 tribes, one nation. And eventually, because of their sin, because of their disobedience, they just got scattered. Some went north, some went south. Some just kind of disappeared. Now, that kind of needed to happen because the people of God had gone off the rails. But... God still always dreamed of getting the, bang, the gang back together again. He made sure that that was going to happen, in fact. Uh, the, prof, the prophet Micah in the Old Testament, he looked forward, he prophesied to when God would gather his people together, as God says in Micah chapter 2. I will surely gather all of you, Israel. I will bring together the remnant of Israel. I'll bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place, I love this, the place will throng. I will gather my people together and the party is going to throng. God is determined to get his people back together and that's what the church is. The church is God's fulfillment of his desire to gather his people because that's what God the gatherer does. He gets his people together. God is like my mother in this respect. Uh, my mother, my father, uh, they have four kids. I'm one of them. I think I'm one of them. And they have, uh, I, like, 16 grand, 12 grandchildren. How many? 14 grandchildren. Instructed. Um, but unfortunately, over the years, we've been scattered. Scattered throughout the Midwest. Uh, some, my parents live here in St. Louis, but some have been um, scattered to Minnesota for a job, some down to Texas for a job. It's only like the really faithful, devoted children who have remained here in St. Louis <laughs> to care for, uh, you know, my aging parents in their old age and neediness. So, um, now it's all necessary, the scattering, you know, it's all necessary because of jobs and such. But I will tell you, my, my mother in particular dreams, she dreams of the holidays when she can gather us together all under one roof again, little chicks under her protective wings. She prophesies this vision for us all year. 
I will gather you, Herndon children, I will gather you and your offspring, the fruit of my womb, like sheep in a pen. Christmas will throng this year. <laughs> we will dance, we will be merry, we will sup, we will throng. Now, of course, not everybody can always make it, and uh, you know, my parents are always okay with that, they're very understanding, but in their heart of hearts, that's the dream, right? Everyone together. And that's God's dream too. Everyone gathered together. And he works for it. He works to gather his people who have been scattered to the nations. That's actually one of the things that Jesus came to do. To gather God's people together again. Jesus, by the power of his teaching, by the power of his personality, by his magnetism, he drew God's people together again. And he did it well. Jesus was so good at drawing people together that at one time, uh, so many people came together next to a lake that Jesus had to get into a boat in the lake so he didn't drown. And this is exactly what Jesus intended to do when he gathered together his 12 disciples. Why 12 disciples? To represent the 12 lost tribes of Israel. Symbolically, gathering together God's people again. It's what Jesus does. That's who he is. Like my mother, he's a gatherer. He finds people who have been scattered across the earth, Minnesota, Texas, St. Louis, and he gathers them together. This means, this means that if you are a Christian, you are part of his gathering. You're a part of his dream. And God, as your gatherer, is not content to leave you hanging out by your lonesome in the hills. He intends to gather you. That's question one, gathered by whom? Gathered by God. Question two, gathered to where? Gathered to where? The easy answer to that is to the church. I mean, that's where God's people typically meet, in churches, like this one. That's where we are right now, we gather in churches, but you know as well as I do that that's not correct. Church buildings are important but not necessary to the people of God. Oftentimes, they can actually be quite distracting to the work of God. As Peter reminds us in the book of Acts, the Most High does not live in houses built by human hands. Churches have been gathering in any old place for thousands of years. Uh, early Christians actually met in underground tombs. I worked for a church down in Texas for a couple years. Uh, we started off in a movie theater moved to a hotel, and we moved to a synagogue. Uh, I worked in campus ministry uh, for a couple years before that, up at Truman State. Uh, we would meet wherever we could find space, like maintenance closets. Uh, when our new church plant starts, uh, I don't know where it's going to end up meeting, but probably not in a beautiful church building like this. They will meet wherever they can, and they will still be a church. So if we don't gather in buildings, though, where do we gather? Well, we gather wherever God's people are. We gather uh, wherever his people meet. And that can be anywhere. It can be in churches, community centers, stadiums. It can be in living rooms, basements, schools. It can be in parks. It can be in prisons, YMCAs. It can be in tattoo parlors, hotels, storefronts, temples. It can be in space stations. There is only one requirement for a place to serve as a gathering of God's people, and it's that God and his people are there. As Jesus himself says, quite clearly, I think, for where two or three gather in my name, 
there I am. That can be anyone. One of the important implications of this, of course, is that you can't be a Christian without gathering together with others. To be a Christian is to be part of the body of Christ. You can't be a part of the body without being a part of the body. Uh, dismembered arms are not parts of the body. There are no Lone Ranger Christians, they say. Uh, writer Paul Tournay has said this. He said, there are two things we cannot do alone. One is to be married, and the other is to be a Christian. I would add to that list, play team sports, but I see what he's saying. <laughs> if the church is the gathering of God's people, it requires others. Now, honestly, for some of you, this is easy. Some of you are natural extroverts. You love coming to church. You love being at church. Uh, rooftop is filled. We are blessed to, to have tons of natural extroverts here. We all know who the natural extroverts are. Pastor Jeremy is a, a natural extrovert. Uh, Nathan Young, natural extrovert. Hannah Bodian is a, a natural extrovert. We even have, as our kids kind of grow older, we even have kids that are growing up in natural extroverts. Rachel Schrage, natural extrovert. Uh, Miranda, what's your last name, sweetie? <laughs> she doesn't know. Miranda, what's your name? Natural extrovert. Inside joke, that's my daughter. That's what's funny. Introverts, on the other hand, might not find church gatherings that easy. Am I right, introverts? Uh, raise your hand if you're an introvert. Stand up proudly, both arms. Say, I am an introvert and I'm proud to be here. There's a guy back there doing that in the back row, of course. That's the best he can do. I actually, I feel your pain, introverts. Uh, you might not know this. I'm an introvert stuck in an extroverted job. Uh, sometimes it takes me two days to recover from Sunday morning. I would much rather be a monk. <laughs> you don't have to talk to anybody. I would want to go, I wouldn't want to be part of the silent monasteries. You know there's silent monasteries? That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's my place. That's my happy place. Um, and I even apply, I keep applying to silent monasteries. Um, but I keep getting rejection letters. They say that I'm too married. <laughs> That's just discrimination, I think. But along these lines, there's actually a book that I've been meaning to read for a while, and I haven't gotten to it, so here's an assignment to somebody in the congregation. Read this book and give me a summary. But the book is Introverts in the Church. Finding Our Place in an Extroverted Culture. Sounds interesting. Um, of course, I'm sure the point of this book is that extroverts need to make space for introverts in church because a lot of the things that churches do are kind of designed for extroverts, not introverts. But on the same token, introverts need to appreciate the fact that they bring a special type of personhood, a special type of experience into the family of God and the church needs everybody. And everyone needs the church. Extroverts, introverts, rich, poor, white, black, Asian, man, woman, independent, needy, young, old, single, married. It doesn't matter where we gather. It doesn't matter when we gather. We just need everyone and God to be here. It just matters that all of us are with God and with each other. And I don't mean here alone together. You know what I'm talking about. Alone together. Just because we're all in the same place doesn't mean we are necessarily together. I know there's a lot of people in this room right now, but I know for a fact, trust me, that a lot of you are seeping in loneliness. 
And that's one of the things we're going to talk about over the course of the series. If the church is a family, how do we experience genuine intimacy in our family? If the church is a community, how do we actually try to get to know one another? So that's question two, gathered to where? To God, to each other, in genuine, authentic relationships. Finally, question three, gathered for what? What's our purpose? What are we doing? We actually have an answer to that question here at Rooftop. From the very beginning, we wanted to have as crystal clear of an idea of what we are called to do as possible. I mean, too many of us gave up too much to start an organization with no sense of who we are or what we're doing. We wanted to be able to answer this question, and we've always had our purpose statement. Our purpose statement has been beautifully scribed on the wall of the entrance that so many of us walk right by when we come into church every Sunday morning. Our purpose here as a church is to be followers of Christ, to make followers of Christ, to make followers of Christ. It's a purpose. And there's six things, six activities, six values that we prioritize in order to accomplish this purpose. Teaching, worship, community, evangelism, service, prayer. Everything we do, each one of those things, is designed to be followers of Christ, to make followers of Christ. We teach the Bible. We teach truth. We worship God with our gifts. We evangelize. We share the good news from the rooftops with the community. We practice community. We get to know each other. We serve the poor. We serve the needy. We serve each other. We pray. We pray for God's will to be done in our lives, in our congregation. Those things come right out of the Bible. The early church, Christians have always been doing those things, teaching worship, evangelism, community service, prayer, for the sake of uh, becoming Christians, making Christians. We didn't make those things up, but those are the things, those are our distinctives. And if anything comes up around here, if somebody wants to do something, we're open to it, but we'll ask, how will this accomplish our purpose? And if it doesn't, we try really hard to say no. The point I want to make for purposes of the sermon this morning, though, is that each single one of these values goes better when we try to do it together. You can do some of these values by yourself, but not well. You can pray by yourself, but prayer usually goes better when you're praying with other people. It can help you out. Uh, you can worship God by yourself, but you can't sing harmony to your own melody. can't do that. That takes a gathering. Even Jesus empowered his disciples to do the work of God with him. What God has given us to do as his church goes better when we gather together to do it. I have spent my entire life in the church. I've probably missed church on Sunday morning like 20 times in my life, and I'm sorry about those 20 times. I've spent my entire life in church. I have seen this that God's people do life, do stuff better together. But even though I am thoroughly convinced of the necessity of doing God's work together, here's the thing. I'm still, I'm still in my sin so darned independent and proud that I still, nonetheless, try to do everything by myself. I try to do most things by myself. I am still, I'm 45 years old and I'm still like a two-year-old. I can do it myself. I can tie my shoes by myself and then I end up, you know, with the shoestring around my neck. How did this happen? For example, over the past few years, my house, the house I live in, uh, has slowly fallen into disrepair. Uh, you might not know this, um, but my family has a tiny little medical family situation. Just minor one, no big deal, you know. Being sarcastic, it's actually quite serious. Uh, that we're just always dealing with. As a result, uh, painting... Plumbing, I mean, who needs pipes to work? 
uh, seating, repairing stuff, taking a back seat. Somewhat embarrassingly, over the years, my house has become the rundown house on the street. Uh, I'd pull up in, in my driveway after work, and I'd pull up and see my house. I'm like, oh, I live in that house. I used to make fun, when I was a kid, I used to make fun of people who lived in those houses, and now I'm living in, in that house. Uh, now, honestly, that's actually okay around here. One of the things I love about Afton is that people don't really care what your house looks like. But even still, you know, I'm a homeowner. I needed to do at least try to keep up. So last year, I kind of doubled down. I tried to keep up. I, I would, you know, I'd try painting rooms at 2 in the morning and, you know, making quick hardware store runs between meetings to get supplies. Uh, but there was no way. Uh, I just felt like I was trying to play a football team by myself or play a symphony by myself. There's just some things like, you know, years of, of deferred home maintenance that you cannot do by yourself. Thankfully... The church, our church, actually believes that. I've preached enough dependence on each other that enough people around here believe it, if not from my example, at least from my preaching. You know, so I talk the talk. Uh, so without asking, the church organized a Herndon family work day. I'm still not convinced that our neighborhood association didn't call up the church office and say something's got to be done about your pastor's house. But I'll never know. One day last October, the church gathered, they gathered they mowed, they planted, they cleaned, they painted, they plumbed, they fixed, they scraped, they trimmed, they hung doors, they replaced doorknobs, they repaired steps, they fixed windows, and more. They did six years' worth of deferred maintenance in about five hours. How? We did it together. The work of God, life, was meant to be done together. You can't do it otherwise. We were meant to do it together. Oh, how we try, though, right? Oh, how we try to do marriage and life and church. Oh, how we try to do these things by ourselves. Leave me alone. I got this. I can do it myself. Hold my beer. Uh, give me my beer back. <laughs> but the work that God has given us to do is too important to try and do it on our own. Praying, teaching, evangelizing, serving, repairing pastor's homes repairing each other's homes, serving the homeless, serving communion, teaching children, teaching teenagers, counseling the needy, counseling the broken, caring for the elderly, planting churches, building community, building homes in Mexico and Belize, spreading the gospel abroad. The work of the church includes all this and more. Sure, we can try it on our own. It won't work. It shouldn't. We can't keep up. It's why we've been gathered. We've been gathered to do God's work together because that's the only way it can be done. Now, next week, we're going to dive in. We're going to talk about what we were meant to be. Pastor Jacob's going to start by talking about the church as a body. But this is what we are. We are the, the gathering. The gathering of God's people gathered by Jesus to him and each other to do the work he has given us to do, work we cannot do alone. Your invitation this morning is to join us. Join the gathering. Let yourself be gathered Maybe you're trying to do life or church or marriage or faith or parenting or suffering alone. You weren't meant to. You were meant to be gathered. God came into the world to gather the scattered. So join us. Join him. Take your next step toward the gathering, whatever it is. Join a small group. Join a serving team. Attend a newcomer's meeting. Uh, become a fourth floor member. 
Uh, get baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. There's lots of steps to take towards the center of God's gathering, towards the center of God's body. You don't have to take all of them this morning, but take one. I mean, if you're not prepared to take a step towards what God's will is for your life, then here's an honest, bold question. Why are you here? If you're not prepared to take a step towards what God's will is for your life and drawing you into the community of his people, then why are you here? Whatever that step is, Take it. So we're going to pray in a moment, but one more special announcement before we close in worship. Here at uh, Rooftop, the elders and the staff have been looking for ways to uh, pass along our beliefs and our convictions as God's Christian people to ourselves, to the community we live in, and to the next generation of rooftoppers growing up in our midst. We have a lot of young people growing up in our midst, and we want to make sure we're helping them understand what it means to believe as Christ would have us. There is a creed, a statement of beliefs, that's what a creed is, that Christians have been reciting over the years that we're going to start saying together on the first Sunday of the month during uh, closing prayer. It's called the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you don't know it, if you don't believe it, please do not feel compelled to recite it. Uh, For those of us, though, who do know it, who have considered it and believe it, this is our opportunity to be reminded of what all God's people everywhere over the centuries in all parts of the globe have believed. And it is our chance to tell God as we are gathered here together that we, along with all of his people everywhere, still believe it. So when we get to that section in the prayer, it'll be up here on the screen. Feel free to sneak a prayer peek and uh, say it along with us. Let's pray. Father, here we are, gathered together as your people. But this isn't some incidental family meeting we're having. This is the fulfillment of a dream that you have had for your people. You saw your people, Israel. You saw all of humanity scattered by their sin. Flee each other and flee you and the fellowship you wanted to have with them and with each other. Israel was scattered in every direction. But you weren't content to let it stay at that. You came to earth as a man to gather us back together again. And you're still doing that through your Holy Spirit here in the world today. You're gathering people together. Each of us are individuals, though. We each have a different sort of relationship with your gathering. Some of us are nervous to be here. Some of us have been here a long time. Some of us are taking the gathering for granted. Some of us are here, but not here. Uh, We all know lots of people who aren't here, who have no interest in being here, gathered together. But we just humbly ask that you continue to do your gathering work, pulling us in towards yourself and pulling us again towards each other. The city of St. Louis and the world will be best served by a group of people who are gathered together around Jesus. That's what you've been doing to people for hundreds and hundreds of years. And we want to close this morning by reciting together, those of us who believe it, along with 
Christians around the globe this morning and over the centuries, words that have joined us together for a very long time. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. From whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body.